Chapter Nine, Part Three of the Pit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. One week after this, Jadwin sold through his agents in Paris a tremendous line of cash wheat at a dollar and sixty cents the bushel. By now, the foreign demand was a thing almost insensate. There was no question as to the price. It was give us the wheat at whatever cost, at whatever figure, at whatever expense, only that it be rushed to our markets with all the swiftness of steam and steel. At home, upon the Chicago Board of Trade, Jadwin was as completely master of the market as of his own right hand. Everything stopped when he raised a finger. Everything leaped to life with the fury of obsession when he nodded his head. His wealth increased with such stupefying rapidity that at no time was he able to even approximate the gains that accrued to him because of his corner. It was more than twenty million and less than fifty million. That was all he knew. Nor were the everlasting hills more secure than he from the attack of any human enemy. Out of the ranks of the conquered there issued not so much as a whisper of hostility. Within his own sphere, no czar, no satrap, no Caesar ever wielded power more resistless. Sam, said Curtis Jadwin at length to the broker, Sam, nothing in the world can stop me now. They think I've been doing something big, don't they, for this quarter? Why, I've only just begun. This is just a feeler. Now I'm going to let em know just how big a gun C.J. really is. I'm going to swing this deal right over into July. I'm going to buy in my July shorts. The two men were in Gretry's office, as usual, and as Jadwin spoke, the broker glanced up incredulously. Now you are for sure crazy. Jadwin jumped to his feet. Crazy, he vociferated. Crazy? What do you mean, crazy? For God's sake, Sam, what? Look here. Don't use that word to me. I... It don't suit. What I've done isn't exactly the work of, of... Takes brains, let me tell you. And look here. Look here, I say. I'm going to swing this deal right over into July. Think I'm going to let it go now when I've just begun to get a real grip on things? A pretty fool I'd look like to get out now, even if I could. Get out? How are we going to unload our big line of wheat without breaking the price on us? No, sir, not much. This market is going up to two dollars. He smote a knee with his clenched fist, his face going abruptly crimson. I say two dollars, he cried. Two dollars, do you hear? It will go there. You'll see. You'll see. Reports on the new crop will begin to come in in June. Gretry's warning was almost a cry. The price of wheat is so high now that God knows how many farmers will plant it this spring. You may have to take care of a record harvest. I know better, retorted Jadwin. I'm watching this thing. You can't tell me anything about it. I've got it all figured out, your new crop. Well, then you're the Lord Almighty himself. I don't like that kind of joke. I don't like that kind of joke. It's blasphemous, exclaimed Jadwin. Go. Get it off on crooks. He'd appreciate it, but I don't. But this new crop now, look here. And for upwards of two hours, Jadwin argued and figured and showed to Gretry endless tables of statistics to prove that he was right. But at the end, Gretry shook his head. 
Calmly and deliberately he spoke his mind. Jay, listen to me. You've done a big thing. I know it, and I know, too, that there have been lots of times in the last year or so when I've been wrong and you've been right. But now, Jay, so help me God, we've reached our limit. Wheat is worth a dollar and a half today and not one cent more. Every eighth over that figure is inflation. If you run it up to two dollars... It will go over there by itself, I tell you. If you run it up to two dollars, it will be that top-heavy that the littlest kick in the world will knock it over. Be satisfied now with what you got, Jay. It's common sense. Close out your long line of May and then stop. Suppose the price does break a little. You'd still make a pile. But swing this deal over into July and it's, it's ruin, ruin. I may have been mistaken before, but I know I'm right now. And do you realize, Jay, that yesterday in the pit there were some short sales? And some of them dared to go short of wheat against you, even at the top of your corner. And there was more selling this morning. You've always got to buy, you know. If they all begin to sell to you at once, they'd bust you. It's only because you've got them scared, I believe, that keeps them from it. But it looks to me as though this selling proved that they were picking up heart. They think they can get the wheat from the farmers when harvesting begins. And I tell you, Jay, you've put the price of wheat so high that the wheat areas are extending all over the country. You're scared, cried Jadwin. That's the trouble with you, Sam. You've been scared from the start. Can't you see, man? Can't you see that this market is a regular tornado? I see that the farmers all over the country are planting wheat as they've never planted it before. Great Scott, Jay, you're fighting against the earth itself. Well, we'll fight it then. I'll stop those hayseeds. What do I own all those newspapers and trade journals for? We'll begin sending out reports tomorrow that'll discourage them from any big wheat planting. And then, too, went on Gretry, there's another point. Do you know you ought to be in bed this very minute? You haven't got any nerves left at all. You acknowledge yourself that you don't sleep any more. And, good Lord, the moment any one of us contradicts you or opposes you, you go off the handle to beat the Dutch. I know it's a strain, old man, but you want to keep yourself in hand if you go on with this thing. If you should break down now, well, I don't like to think what would happen. You ought to see a doctor. Oh, fiddlesticks, exclaimed Jadwin. I'm all right. I don't need a doctor. Haven't time to see one anyhow. Don't you bother about me. I'm all right. Was he? That same night, the first uh, he had spent under his own roof for four days, Jadwin lay awake till the clock struck four, asking himself the same question. No, he was not all right. Something was very wrong with him, and whatever it might be, it was growing worse. The sensation of the iron clamp around his head was almost permanent by now, and just the walk between his room at the Grand Pacific and Gretry's office left him panting and exhausted. Then had come vertigos and strange, inexplicable qualms, as if he were in an elevator that sank under him with terrifying rapidity. Going to and fro in La Salle Street or sitting in Gretry's office, where the roar of the pit dinned forever in his ears, he could forget these strange symptoms. It was the night he dreaded, the long hours he must spend alone. The instant the strain was relaxed, 
the gallop of hoofs or as the beat of ungovernable torrents began in his brain always the beat dropped to the same cadence always the pulse spelled out the same words wheat 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 and of late during the long and still watches of the night while he stared at the ceiling or counted the hours that must pass before his next dose of bromide of potassium, a new turn had been given to the screw. This was a sensation, the like of which he found it difficult to describe. But it seemed to be a slow, tense crisping of every tiniest nerve in his body. It would begin as he lay in bed, counting interminably to get himself to sleep, between his knees and ankles, and then slowly spread to every part of him, creeping upward from loin to shoulder, in a gradual wave of torture that was not pain, yet infinitely worse, a dry, pringling aura as of billions of minute electric shocks crept upward over his flesh, till it reached his head, where it seemed to culminate in a white flash, which he felt rather than saw, his body felt strange and unfamiliar to him. It seemed to have no weight, and at times his hands would appear to swell swiftly to the size of mammoth boxing gloves, so that he must rub them together to feel that they were his own. He put off consulting a doctor from day to day, alleging that he had not the time. But the real reason, though he never admitted it, was the fear that the doctor might tell him what he guessed to be the truth were his wits leaving him the horror of the question smote through him like the drive of a javelin what was to happen what nameless calamity impended wheat 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 his watch under his pillow took up the refrain how to grasp the morrow's business how control the sluice gates of that torrent he had unchained with this unspeakable crumbling and disintegrating of his faculties going on. Jaded, feeble, he rose to meet another day. He drove downtown, trying not to hear the beat of the horse's hoofs. Dizzy and stupefied, he gained Gretry's office, and alone with his terrors sat in the chair before his desk, waiting, waiting. Then, far away, the great gong struck, just over his head, penetrating wood and iron, he heard the mighty throw of the pit once more beginning moving. And then, once again, the limp and raveled fibers of being grew tight with a wrench. Under the stimulus of the roar of the maelstrom, the flagging, wavering brain righted itself once more, and, how, he himself could not say, the business of the day was dispatched, the battle was once more urged. Often he acted upon what he knew to be blind, unreasoned instinct. Judgment, clear reasoning, at times he felt forsook him. Decisions that involved what seemed to be the very stronghold of his situation had to be taken without a moment's warning. He decided for or against, without knowing why. Under his feet, fissures opened. He must take the leap without seeing the other edge. Somehow he always landed upon his feet. Somehow his great cumbersome engine, lurching, swaying, in spite of loosened joints, always kept the track. 
luck his golden goddess the genius of glittering wings was with him yet sorely tried flouted even she remained faithful lending a helping hand to lost and wandering judgment so the month of may drew to its close between the twenty-fifth and the thirtieth jadwin covered his july shortage despite gretry's protests and warnings to him they seemed idle enough he was too rich too strong now to fear any issue daily the profits of the corner increased the unfortunate shorts were wrung dry and drier in gretry's office they heard their sentences and as time went on and jadwin beheld more and more of these broken speculators a vast contempt for human nature grew within him some few of his beaten enemies were resolute enough accepting defeat with grim carelessness or with sphinx-like indifference or even with airy jocularity but for the most part their alert eager deference their tame subservience the abject humility and debasement of their bent shoulders drove jadwin to the verge of self-control he grew to detest the business he regretted even the defiant brutality of scannel a rascal but none the less keeping his head high the more the fellows cringed to him the tighter he wrenched at the screw in a few cases he found a pleasure in relenting entirely selling his wheat to the unfortunates at a price that left them without loss but in the end the business hardened his heart to any distress his mercilessness might entail he took his profits as a bourbon took his taxes as if by right of birth somewhere in a long-forgotten history of his brief school days he had come across a phrase that he remembered now by some devious and distant process of association and when he heard of the calamities that his campaign had wrought of the shipwrecked fortunes and careers that were sucked down by the pit he found it possible to say with a short laugh and a lift of one shoulder by victus his wife he saw but seldom occasionally they breakfasted together more often they met at dinner but that was all jadwin's life by now had uh, come to be so irregular and his few hours of sleep so precious and so easily disturbed that he had long since occupied a separate apartment what laura's life was at this time he no longer knew she never spoke of it to him never nowadays complained of loneliness when he saw her she appeared to be cheerful but this very cheerfulness made him uneasy and at times through the murk of the chaff of wheat through the bellow of the pit and the crash of collapsing fortunes there reached him a suspicion that all was not well with laura once he had made an abortive attempt to break from the turmoil of la salle street and the board of trade and for a time at least to get back to the old life they both had loved to get back in a word to her but the consequences had been all but disastrous now he could not keep away corner wheat he had exclaimed to her the following day corner wheat it's the wheat that has cornered me it's like holding a wolf by the ears bad to hold on but worse to let go 
But absorbed, blinded, deafened by the whirl of things, Curtis Jadwin could not see how perilously well-grounded had been his faint suspicion as to Laura's distress. On the day after her evening with her husband in the art gallery, the evening when Gretry had broken in upon them like a courier from the front, Laura had risen from her bed to look out upon a world suddenly empty. Corthell, she had sent from her forever. Jadwin was once more snatched from her side. Where now was she to turn? Jadwin had urged her to go to the country, to their place at Geneva Lake, but she refused. She saw the change that had of late come over her husband, saw his lean face, the hot, tired eyes, the trembling fingers, and nervous gestures. Vaguely she imagined approaching disaster. If anything happened to Curtis, her place was at his side. During the days that Jadwin and Crooks were at grapples, Laura found means to occupy her mind with all manner of small activities. She overhauled her wardrobe planned her summer gowns, paid daily visits to her dressmakers, rode and drove in the park till every turn of the roads, every tree and every bush was familiar, to the point of wearisome contempt. Then, suddenly, she began to indulge in a mania for old books and first editions. She haunted the stationers and second-hand bookstores, studied the authorities, followed the auctions, and bought right and left with reckless extravagance. But the taste soon palled upon her. With so much money at her command, there was none of the spice of the hunt in the affair. She had but to express a desire for a certain treasure, and forthwith it was put into her hand. She found it so in all other things. Her desires were gratified with an abruptness that killed the zest of them. She felt none of the joy of possession. The little personal relation between her and her belongings vanished away. Her gowns, beautiful beyond all she had ever imagined, were of no more interest to her than a drawerful of outworn gloves. She bought horses till she could no longer tell them apart. Her carriages crowded three supplementary stables in the neighborhood. Her flowers, miracles of laborious cultivation, filled the whole house with their fragrance. Wherever she went, deference moved before her like a guard. Her beauty, her enormous wealth, her wonderful horses, her exquisite gowns, made her a sinecure, a veritable queen. And hardly a day passed that Laura Jadwin, in the solitude of her own boudoir, did not fling her arms wide in a gesture of lassitude and infinite weariness, crying out, Oh, the ennui and stupidity of all this wretched life! She could look forward to nothing. One day it was like the next. No one came to see her. For all her great house and for all her money, she had made but few friends. Her grand manner had never helped her popularity. She passed her evenings alone in her upstairs sitting-room, reading, reading till far into the night, or the lights extinguished sat at her open window listening to the monotonous lap and wash of the lake. At such moments she thought of the men who had come into her life, of the love she had known almost from her girlhood. She remembered her first serious affair. 
It had been with the impecunious theological student who was her tutor. He had worn glasses and little black side-whiskers, and had implored her to marry him and come to China, where he was to be a missionary. Every time that he came he had brought her a new book to read, and he had taken her for long walks up toward the hills where the old powder mill stood. Then it was the young lawyer, the brightest man in Worcester County, who took her driving in a hired buggy, sent her a multitude of paper novels, which she never read, with every love passage carefully underscored, and wrote very bad verse to her eyes and hair, whose velvet blackness was the shadow of a crown. Nor again it was the youthful cavalry officer met in a flying visit to her Boston aunt, who loved her on first sight, gave her his photograph in uniform, and a bead belt of Apache workmanship. He was forever singing to her, to a guitar accompaniment, an old love song. At midnight hour beneath the tower he murmured soft, O nothing fearing with thine own true soldier fly. Then she had come to Chicago, and Landry Court, with his bright enthusiasms and fine exaltations, had loved her. She had never taken him very seriously, but nonetheless it had been very sweet to know his whole universe depended upon the nod of her head, and that her influence over him had been so potent, had kept him clean and loyal and honest. And after this Corthell and Jadwin had come into her life, the artist and the man of affairs. She remembered Corthell's quiet, patient, earnest devotion of those days before her marriage. He rarely spoke to her of his love, but by some ingenious subtlety he had filled her whole life with it. His little attentions, his undemonstrative solicitudes, came precisely when and where they were most appropriate. He had never failed her. Whenever she had needed him, or even when through caprice or impulse she had turned to him, it always had been to find that long since he had carefully prepared for that very contingency. His thoughtfulness of her had been a thing to wonder at. He remembered for months, years even, her most trivial fancies, her unexpressed dislikes. He knew her tastes as if by instinct. He prepared little surprises for her, and placed them in her way without ostentation, and quite as matters of course. He never permitted her to be embarrassed. The little annoying situations of the day's life he had smoothed away long before they had ensnared her. He was never off his guard, never disturbed, never excited. And he amused her. He entertained her without seeming to do so. He made her talk. He made her think. He stimulated and aroused her, so that she herself talked and thought with a brilliancy that surprised herself. In fine, he had so contrived that she associated him with everything that was agreeable. End of chapter 9, part 3